Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to be reading and studying verses 35 through 51 this morning. So John writes, beginning in verse 35, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The next day, Again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. (laughs) I'm not even going to make it through the reading. Sorry. And the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word made flesh. We thank you for Jesus. And we just pray that our whole lives would now be helped to be centered and recentered again on him. Help us to see his surpassing goodness. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Anybody like the Olympics? I'm one who enjoys the Olympics, especially the summer version, and specifically track and field, and within that, the relays. And as I understand it, it's usually your best runner, I think, who runs the last leg of the race. They're the the closer, they're the, the anchor, they're the one to bring the whole team across 
the finish line. And you've seen this play out, right? The gun is, is shot, and off they go. And one passes the baton to another, then that one passes the baton to another, and then that one passes the baton to the, the anchor. And the first three are all trying to do one thing, and that's beat everybody else to that runner. But that runner, they pass the baton to nobody. Why not? Because they're the goal. They're the end of the line. They're the one who gets them all the way home. This morning we want to relate all of that to biblical discipleship. By biblical discipleship we mean helping each other to intentionally, growingly, and enduringly walk with Jesus. That's what we desire to be a defining mark of our church, this church. We want to have a culture of discipleship. We want to have a culture that disciples. We want to be a people who, as our vision and mission and values say, cultivate Christ's community from the word go, right? From the new birth. We want to be disciples who are making disciples. Those who are running the race together with one goal. Get to the anchor. right? Get to the author and perfecter of our faith. Get to Jesus. And once there, go wherever He goes. This is what our text does for us this morning. It takes us to Jesus. And in the process, teaches us how to bring others along with us. And so, let's go with it, starting at verse 35, where we begin to see discipleship in terms of helping others to Jesus. Helping others to Jesus. And our first guide is, as it should be, John the Baptist. Right? It is the next day now. He's standing with two of his disciples, it says, and there goes Jesus. Jesus walks by, and seeing him, John declares of him, second time in as many days, this is the Lamb of God. Right? Here is the one, as we said a week ago, who can take away our sin. Jesus is the only provision God has given to make an actual atonement for sins. He's the one who came into the world to lay down his perfectly obedient life on the cross to forgive us and to justify us and to save us from the right wrath of a holy God. Nothing and no one else will or can do this. That's why we're told by John, behold him. Behold him. It is imperative that we don't miss Jesus. And let's not miss the imperative. John is commanding his disciples to behold Jesus and to behold him as the Lamb of God, to behold him as the Christ. It's to behold him as the one who is greater than John. Can I tell you, uh, it is one of the, the sweetest, and hardest things to disciple people with all your heart only to need to detach them from yourself and to send them away further than you can take them and ultimately to one who is greater than you. But that's what great disciplers do. Right? It's the goal of all truly Christian ministry not to hoard Christ's people but to first see them as Christ's people, and then to serve them as Christ's people, and then send them out as Christ's people. It's not to, it's not to grow a following for ourselves, it's to develop His following. It's, it's see Him, believe in Him, go to Him, dine with Him, commune with Him, follow Him wherever He goes, be His Christian discipler is never happier than seeing those they've discipled move off of them into a spiritually adult relationship with Jesus. Where you might not have seen them for a decade, but still it's clear by their growth that they have 
been amongst the community of Jesus and they have lived with Jesus and Jesus has grown them up. All right, so John says in one of his letters, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. <clears throat> He's no longer around them. They're his children. He was with them in the beginning. And here he is years later and they are still walking in the truth. Jesus has been with them the whole time. Surely it was the same for John the Baptist, as we see, verse 37, that these two disciples left John, they left John to follow Jesus. This is what real believers do. They see in the Lamb one worth following, and as John will later say in Revelation 14, verse 4, they thus follow him wherever he goes. And so the question for us is, does this define our discipling? Does this define our discipleship? Now, beloved, we need to be clear, there are many ways that people can go in the world, but there's only one person that's the pathway to glory. Okay? Are we preparing each other to go the narrow way? Right? They are leaving John for Jesus. And they're doing it, we cannot forget this, the day after, like the next day, that the religious authorities had questioned John and marginalized John. And how much more are they going to do this of Jesus, whom they do not know? And yet, these two guys, Andrew and whoever the other one is, they eschew the opinions of the world. They eschew the potential repercussions of men precisely to go with Jesus. It is only as we help each other prefer Him to all the world that we have done discipleship well. Is it present in our preparing of souls that as one said, when Jesus calls a person, He bids them die? What's the call of discipleship? Take up your cross and follow me. Right? So follow me is always fronted and never severed from take up your cross. Now, you'll notice Jesus doesn't invite these two. But as we said, John has sent them, for all intents and purposes, and this is meant to remind us that an important transition is upon us here in the passage. John's work is all but finished. He's pointed to Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. And so the baton is, is being passed here. It's Christ's turn to run His race. And uh, at first reading, the scene had a little bit of comedy in it to me. All right, there goes Jesus and He's just walking along, and he looks behind him, and all of a sudden, there are these two men closely following, and the first thought in my mind was, you know, are they about to Jericho road me? You know, are they about to uh, attack me or something like that? That was my initial thought. I don't think that it was our Lord's. But do you see, he understands they are after something. So he asked them. What are you seeking? <clears throat> Probably want to note that these are the first words of Jesus in this gospel. They're the first words of the Word. Right? And they are typically penetrating. Indeed, friend, in following Jesus, what are you seeking? Is it fame? Fortune? Is it a platform? Is it a voice? Is it to gather a hearing? Is it a book deal? You can make a lot of money as a follower of Jesus in America. Is it power? Is it mere health? A better marriage? You think an easier life? What is it? 
What are you seeking? Well, in a roundabout way, these two provide the correct answer. Jesus again asks them, what are you seeking? And they reply what? Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? You hear it? In following Jesus, they are seeking none other than Jesus. They want an audience with Jesus. They're after fellowship with the Lamb of God. They want to be in the school of Christ. So dear ones, true disciples of Jesus want nothing more than time with Jesus. However we we, we break from it from time to time, we, we really believe He is all we need in life and in death and everywhere in between. What they're saying here is, we want you, Jesus. And man, don't we just love how Jesus responds to people? Come then, and you will see. (laughs) He receives them from John as his own disciples. Friends, there are none who want Jesus as he is, whom Jesus will not take as they are. What are you seeking? You, sorry, kind of busy, no, don't have time for that, is never the response of Christ. He became flesh and dwelt among us to always say to such, come and you will what? See. And I think it's worth noting here, just jot it down, think about it later this afternoon, that the first act of our Lord's discipling is a home visit. Right? Hospitality is the way of the master discipler, so perhaps it should be a priority in our discipling also. Well, John's discipleship shows us the goal, right? It's to develop followers of Jesus who find in Jesus all they could ever rightly want or need Christ all-sufficient. And that brings us to Andrew. Andrew, again, is is one of the the two that have left John for Jesus. And after hanging with Jesus all night, he's like, i got to find my brother. (laughs) Why? Because if you find a treasure and your heart is a gem by grace, you can't help but want others to come and discover it too. Right? Now, What I just said speaks really ill of my heart because when Megan Jenkins sends us her honey butter, the last thing I want to do is share it with other people. But, where our hearts are rich with Christ is a question we need to ask ourselves. Where our hearts are rich with Christ, our hearts will want to spread the wealth. And this is where Andrew is really exemplary for us. He appears here, and in chapter 6, verse 8, and in chapter 12, verse 22, in John's Gospel. And do you know what Andrew's doing each time? For one reason or another, he's bringing people to Jesus. Really cool. And here, in bringing his brother to Jesus, we're to learn that the simplest and oft-forgotten labors among men can be incredibly significant in the grand scope of Christ's kingdom. Andrew does not here discover Jesus and then run out into the streets of Jerusalem and start heralding, behold, the Lamb of God. That was John. He just finds his brother, tells him one-on-one, we found the Christ. And he brings him to Jesus. It's all very private. It's all very intentional. It's all very simple. It's what any one of us can do. Call up a dear friend. Sit down with a beloved spouse, a beloved child, a beloved sibling. Say, I found the Christ and bring them far as you can 
to Jesus. This is not preaching. This is not teaching systematic theology and all that kind of jazz, right? It's just as simple as arranging a meeting between this person and Jesus. And I I just tell you, this is as good for the clouded believer as it is for the outright unbeliever. You notice here that Andrew's brother is a believer in Christ. A believer in the Christ. Uh, He just needed to have a face put with a notion. (laughs) He just needed to have flesh and blood paired with a biblical ideal. And again, this is so much of discipling. Many have notions of Christ who have only a little savor of Jesus. Again, I can be told Megan's honey butter is sweet. And upon the credibility of that witness, believe. It must be really sweet. But to actually taste of that honey butter myself. Here, to taste the goodness of Christ myself, that is something we all continually need. Not mere information about Jesus, but communion with Jesus. Not sheer notions about Jesus, but a shaping nearness to Jesus. Discipleship informs the mind, it really does, it informs the mind to bring the heart closer to Jesus as Andrew for his brother. And now if you didn't have it in front of you, would you have known who Andrew's brother was? And even if you knew it was Peter, would you have known how he was brought to Jesus? I just asked you before service this morning, before reading the text this morning, would you have known who brought Peter to Jesus? This is where I confess my Initial ignorance as I came to the text this week. What's the point? It's that in the bigger picture, our labors for Jesus will be forgotten by man. Almost certainly you and I will not be Peter's. We won't be Augustine's or Anselm's or Luther's or Edward's or Spurgeon's or Piper's or Lottie Moon's or Annie Armstrong's and the like. And that's perfectly okay. That's perfectly wonderful. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. We're to be happy to serve Him and then vanish from the scene to glory. (laughs) Knowing He sees our labors and is happy to make use of them. And to that, we hardly know what Christ might do through our simple, forget-me, acts of discipleship. Simon was Simon. Until Andrew, who gets forgotten, brought him to Jesus, who in verse 42, made him Peter. Okay? The rock man. Though, we know that Peter was anything but that at first. I just want us to see that the goal then is not to bring perfect to Jesus. It's to bring Peter's to the by and by perfecter of our faith. It's to take the long view with good hope in the power of Jesus. And so, beloved, do not despise the days of basic, basic discipleship. Yes, Peter may have preached thousands into the kingdom in one sermon, but Peter wasn't brought that way. 
Thousands would listen to a word from a friend, one said, who will not listen to a pastor's sermon. So we learn from Andrew. Whatever becomes of us, just bring people to Jesus and sit back and watch as he makes them all that he has intended them to be. Well, we arrive at verse 43 in Philip. John, Andrew, Philip. And Philip is the first in this vein to be called, you see there, by Jesus, where Jesus confirms what we've said so far when he says, follow me, follow me, full stop. He is not like John. He is not like you. He is not like me. He is not a means to an end. He is not a passer of the baton. There is no next. There is none greater. There's just Jesus. And we're given to assume that Philip got this because, next we know, Philip is pulling an Andrew. Okay? You see the pattern here. People find Jesus, and then those people find other people, and what do they do with them? They, they bring them to Jesus. And here, it's a man, verse 45, named Nathaniel. And before we address him, notice what Philip says to him about Jesus. He says this. He says, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Now, why is seeing this so critical for discipleship? It's critical because faithful discipleship only knows one Christ. And that is the biblical Christ. You know, it's interesting. We, uh, we noted Andrew's penchant for bringing people to Jesus, always leaning on Jesus. And we noted Andrew was a, he's a dependent kind of disciple. But now if you, if you track Philip in this gospel, what do we find but one who's always sort of confused? Right? He's... He's maybe even clueless at times about Jesus. Philip presents himself as sort of this consistently dense disciple. You remember him? Probably most famously in John 14. Show us the Father, Jesus. Philip, have I been with you so long? And still, you do not know me. That's Philip. (laughs) And surely... There's at least a little bit of Philip in every single one of us here this morning. But here's the encouragement. The encouragement is that in our discipling and in our discipleship, we have a word from God that's all about Jesus. We don't have to be Captain Christian to disciple well. We just have to be available to sit and chat with people over an open Bible. And of course, it helps to know, it really does help to know, that all of it, including the Old Testament, which is what Philip mentions here, is summarily about who? Christ. So a serious and honest reader of the Old Testament, Jew or Gentile, believer or not, can only conclude that it is inherently messianic in nature and content, this Old Testament. In it, God reveals a Christ with increasing clarity and detail. And what Philip says, probably after having an extended conversation with Jesus, is that Jesus is that Christ. Moses, get this, next time you're reading Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Moses wrote about Jesus. The prophets, and I'm not going to go through all of them, but the prophets wrote about Jesus. God spoke in Scripture about Jesus. Jesus is the biblical Christ. And again, there is no other. Now, many in Jesus' day, get this, They were actually saying, I am the Christ. Remember them going to John? What do you say about yourself? Are you the Christ? John says, no. Some people said, yes. 
And today, we're fine making our own kind of Jesus, right? fashioning a Jesus after usually our own desires and wants and likenesses. Right? This is hardly a new phenomenon. But at the end of the day, there is only one Christ, and the test of Him is Scripture. So, as the disciples will learn, whatever imaginations they had of who and what the Christ would be, it all had to be retooled and brought into alignment with the revelation God had given in His Word. Now, this is Jesus' glory. This is not restrictive on Jesus. This is His glory to be the Christ of Scripture. It says He is, in fact, the Christ of God. And this is vital to understand because so much of who Christ is is directly opposed to who people would naturally expect Him to be. Okay? Case in point, Nathaniel. You see, Philip begins well enough to this man and then he loses some initial momentum. Why? Why does he lose that momentum? He loses it by identifying the Christ of Scripture as whom? Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. In John's language, the Word, Christ of Scripture, made flesh. Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathaniel, true as he was, hears that and instantly is flooded with skepticism, <laughs> uh, maybe some criticism, but definitely some doubt. And again, why? Because it seemed highly unlikely to him that the Christ would hail from a place like Nazareth. Okay? Nazareth, if you don't know, Nazareth was the sticks. You know? Like it's just a rural little place out there in Galilee. It was nowheresville. It was of no repute. And so you see his initial response, verse 46. What does he say? Nathaniel says, really? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Anything. Put it more starkly. Can the Christ of Scripture... The serpent crusher, the seed of Abraham, the true bread from heaven, the prophet from Moses, the son of David, the suffering servant, etc., etc., etc. Can God's chief good to the world come out of no good Nazareth? I have a hard time believing that, Philip. And here, we might call him disciple density. Philip, he actually does most wisely. Don't you love it? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? What's he say? Come and see. <laughs> come and see. Come and check him out for yourself. So long as your notions of Christ are biblical, key there, Jesus will never let you down. So long as your notions of Him are biblical, Jesus will never disappoint. And even if they aren't, just come and see anyway. Jesus is neither fearful nor hesitant to be examined. He's pretty confident in who He is. And so let's come now to consider discipleship, but from a different angle. Not just helping people to Jesus, but then once they get there, Jesus helping His people. Which is all our hope in discipleship. So look at verse 47. You see Nathaniel coming toward Jesus. He's been willing against his initial judgment to give him a chance. And in return, Jesus will give Nathaniel grace. Friends, 
Nathaniel is the first intended disciple to express his doubts about Jesus. These guys are not gullible men, for all I've said about Philip. They were not gullible men. And Jesus is okay with that. He sees Nathaniel, and instead of rebuking him or all out rejecting him for his unbelief, his disbelief, his doubts, what does Jesus do? He welcomes him. And he speaks charitably of him. Jesus gives him grace. And perhaps that is what you need to hear this morning. Certainly it's good for all of us to come and see again. No matter our built-in skepticism, no matter our tendency to doubt, no matter our givenness to worldly ideas about Him, Jesus keeps an open-door policy for all who would come and see and have come to see. He sees us and treats us however we have mistreated Him as heirs of grace. Always. That's what we first see here. It's, it's all the more winning as we consider that in and out, Jesus knows us. He knows us. And still, knowing us, He extends nothing but gracious charity to us. Do you see what He says of Nathaniel? He says something of Nathaniel that, that can only most truly be said of Himself. Behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is, as you say, no deceit. Fun fact. But you know Israel was a man before he was a nation? Right? And that his name was first what? Jacob. Jacob, the name there, it alludes to the idea of lying, cheating, and deceit. And so, as one put it, what Jesus says here is that Nathanael is, quote, one who is all Israel and no Jacob. <laughs> I love that, right? He, he's an Israelite in whom there is no Jacob, no deceit. In other words, despite his doubts about Jesus, Jesus understands and expresses Nathanael to be a believing soul. Someone who has a circumcised heart. Nathanael is an Israelite Indeed. And see then that Jesus knows, He knows our inner selves. That Jesus can see right into us. We're going to see that in just a couple weeks as He goes into Nicodemus. He sees right into us. He sees, praise Jesus, <laughs> He sees more than what is outwardly unbecoming of us. He knows where there's grace in the heart. And why does he know that? Because it's his and he put it there. And he knows also how then to draw that grace out anew. And to that end we go. Per Nathaniel's reply, they've never met. You see verse 48? What does Nathaniel say? He says, how do you know me? I mean, no offense, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I've never met you. And Jesus goes full Jesus. As only Jesus can, He says, no offense taken, I've never met you either, but I've always known you. <laughs> Nathaniel, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, man, I wish we had more details there. But in explaining this, few say more than this. Uh, that Jesus has let Nathaniel in on some knowledge of him that's so specific and so intimate that he leaves no option that his knowing is at least supernatural. There's no way anyone could have known that. It's a, it's a knowledge that is generally unavailable to the human race. And I include it here because it's a cool thought, and 
Believe it or not, reliable commentators have actually suggested it, that Jesus is referring to some impression that God might have made on Nathanael during a devotional time under the fig tree. And Jesus is saying, hey Nathanael, I was there. We can talk later about that. But bigger picture, we're simply made aware, listen, that whoever we are, that whenever we are, wherever we are, and however we are, Jesus sees us, and Jesus knows us, and Jesus cares after us. He is divinely aware of his disciples to nurture the seed of faith that he himself planted within us. So that, while he allows for doubt, he means, finally, to leave no doubt. To grow us from criticism into full-on conviction about who he is and what he's going to do for us. Okay? And it is a word about his know-how in this that Nathanael is immediately moved from, can anything good come out of Nazareth, to verse 49, Rabbi, you're the Son of God and the King of Israel. (laughs) Oh man, Christ's knowledge of Nathanael in and out is enough for this sound man to declare Jesus to be God's Christ. What he's come to see of Jesus is sufficient for this new-hearted Israelite to call Jesus his own Messiah King. It's very similar to what we're going to get to a long time from now at the end of the Gospel when he's like to Thomas, hey, check out my my hands and my feet and my side and all this kind of stuff. And Thomas, who was skeptical, doubting, and unbelieving in that sense, he says, my Lord and my God. It's that kind of shift here. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus basically responds, Nathaniel, you haven't seen anything yet. Let's not overlook here that Nathaniel just called Jesus the Son of God and King of Israel as to this point. He's also been called or self-shown to be the sin-bearing Lamb of God, the Spirit baptizer, the life giver and redefiner, the great teacher, the goal of redemption, the true Israel, the chief good, and the Christ of Scripture. And Jesus has denied absolutely none of that. He's not done what John did. Are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? No. It's another. Jesus doesn't do that. He never says, whoa, that's too much. He receives it all as accurate. And now says, on top of that, I've got still greater things to show you. Wow. Really, Jesus? Yes. (laughs) Beloved, there is no shortage or fullness in our faith, but Jesus has more of himself to supply and stretch it in a really good way. And do notice, notice his certainty about it, as Jesus now fronts what he has to say with his uniquely patented, truly, truly, I say to you. Right? Jesus puts his amen on the front end of what he says because what he says is the very word of God. It's not just a, a faithful saying of God, it is the word of God. He is God who now has a tongue. So, in our discipling, let's understand, we don't bring others to someone who is like us. So often unclear and errant. We come to Jesus. We bring people to Jesus who speaks the truth and nothing but the truth. We bring each other to Him who is perfectly trustworthy. 
And so whatever you want to know about life, about eternity, about ultimacy, about priority, whatever you want to know, Jesus can tell you inerrantly. He will never lead you astray. And what a word he fronts here with his amen. It's about his own greater glory. We might say his surpassing goodness. It's more than Nathaniel could have expected. He not only meets our earthly expectations, he goes far beyond them. So here, verse 51, Jesus alludes to what Megan read for us in the call to worship. To Genesis 28. I'll just give the details here very briefly. Remember this, we have Jacob. Jacob has a dream. And in the dream, Jacob is shown a, a ladder. And atop the ladder, there's God. And there are angels going up and down the ladder as his heavenly ministers, I think, in the world. And God says to Jacob in the dream, Have no fear, I will accomplish all that I have promised you and your descendants about Christ. And Jacob then awakes and says, I didn't know it. I didn't know it. But surely God is in this place. Even the house of God. Indeed, the very gate of heaven. And Jesus says to us, yeah, that's all about me. (laughs) Oh my goodness. People don't know it. But God is is in this place, Nathaniel. And he's no longer atop the ladder. He has come down to earth. He became flesh and dwells among you even now, and it is me. It's Jesus. He's the mediator. He's the house of God. Literally, God encased in flesh, a human nature. He's the house of God. He's the gate of heaven. He is the ladder by which the exiles of Eden, you and me and any that believes, can forevermore re-enter the presence of God with joy. O Nathaniel, he says, you will see heaven What's the word? It's closed. It's been closed. What's he say? You will see heaven opened. You remember him on the cross? It is finished. He breathes his last. And what happens? The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying something that was really happening in heaven. An entryway was made. You will see heaven opened, even as it is this very hour. But the glory is in the unexpected. It's in what only the mind of God in Scripture could conceive. That that way to God would be forged by the destruction of that house. That the ladder would be built by the wood and nails of the cross of Jesus. Jacob could not have dreamed it. Nathaniel could never have thought it. <laughs> but Christ is going to be crucified. And they, as we, as he, is going to call it his glory. That's my glory. So, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see. Come and see. Unbelieving friend, uh, we pray you see and come to Jesus. Believe as all these did in our passage that Jesus really is all he is. He's the lamb, he's the Christ, he's the son, he's the king, he's the ladder and more. Believe that he's all those things for you. Only believe. And you will find Him to be your Lord and Savior too. Beloved, how good is Jesus? So good. So good in His grace. 
So good in His knowing of us. So good in His word to us. So good in His glory. And by His gracious enlisting then, we can do no better than to help people get to Jesus who helps His people as only He can. That's all our goal. It's all our hope in biblical discipleship, whether by preaching as John or one-to-one as Andrew or in the home and around the table as our Lord or to the text, to the fount as Philip. It's all about helping people to Jesus who's then able, despite us, to bring us all the way home. And already, He's opened heaven to us. So, as we head in that direction together then, let's just be hopeful disciples. Let's be hopeful disciples who have it in our hearts to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for what You have given to us about your Son, about our Lord, our Savior, Jesus. And we do pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear now and even on our way out and as we sing and throughout the course of the week, more and more increasingly throughout our lives, help us to see and to hear just how good he is. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.